Happy Daylight Savings again. The chosen ones who set your alarms ahead correctly. Uh, I don't think that was a Freudian slip, Oma. That was a sovereign slip. We prepare our hearts for the high worship of listening intently with the Holy Spirit's help to the Word of God. It is every bit as much worship in giving our ears, the ears that Jesus gives us, to his voice as much as giving our voice to his ears. We worship with our ears. Amen? Now today, if you're, if you're visiting, by the way, my name is Peter. I serve on the team of elders. And today, we start a new preaching series called Better Together. Now, as we're going to see in Romans 15 and 16, we can only fulfill our purpose and our mission as a redeemed people of God if we function interdependently. We're rooted together in Jesus, and we're leaning on each other in real ways. Amen? I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to repeat verse 7 of Romans 15, and then read all the way through verse 13. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs that in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Verse 12, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Lord, you are an all-consuming fire of glorious power and love. So come now and consume any lesser glories or fears that would hold us back from receiving all of who you are for such a time as this. Amen. If you're taking notes, the title of this message is Springs of Mercy. You know, the gospel story, the story of this Jewish Messiah who fulfills the Jewish law and pays the ultimate blood sacrifice to fully and finally atone for and pay for our sin the sin of the Jew and the sin of the non-Jew or Gentile, then this same God who after dying for us raises again from the dead to kill death, essentially. This gospel story 
is like an oasis spring in the desert. I remember when I was ruled by empty dreams and aspirations in my life, and when I was enslaved by lust and selfishness and self-condemnation and guilt. But in that moment when I encountered the mercy of Jesus through the annoyingly persistent preaching of my other high school friends. I remember that moment. It was like finding water in an otherwise dry and weary land, as the psalmist says. That was 1997 for me. And in that year, I jumped in to the oasis spring of the gospel. And I found that the gospel is so overflowing that it tends to be like a river that we're meant to not simply jump in, but flow out to others around us. And indeed, to all the Gentile nations, as our passage says. The gospel story, the story of his mercy towards us, cannot be separated from the gospel mission to go and in, in, in receiving it, flowing out to others, extending the same mercy that he gives us to others for his glory. And so I want to spend most of my time today showing you this surprising gospel story and elements of it that we tend to miss as I preach back through verses 7 through 12. And then I want to speak a blessing over you. In fact, speak the blessing of verse 13 over you in hopes that God willing, the Holy Spirit would compel you too to jump in and flow out of the gospel. So verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now I'm repeating this verse from last week, and I'm going to spend probably more time on this verse than anything else, in large part to underline our series, our vision for the rest of the book of Romans, that we would be interconnected, that we'd be, see what it means to be better together. Because this verse sets the tone for the rest of the the finish of the letter of Romans. And it really does set the tone for the gospel reminder that he gives in the next several verses too. So I want to underline the highest context that the Bible builds off of here for what the gospel is so that we can not get anything less out of what it means to receive the gospel and to live as a Christian. God forbid that we miss out on the highest reasons and drivers for why we live and move and have our being. The gospel is about Jesus coming to receive or welcome, as it says here in the ESV, to receive people for himself so that we who have rebelled against him, we'd be be received by him, and then be enabled to receive others because we are like him. We are adopted into his family. We're received. We're welcomed by him. We're given his right standing with God, his righteousness. We're one with the Father because of the payment he paid for us on the cross. And then we're enabled to be like him, to welcome others. And it's a, it's a gift and it's a command. Isn't that much like so much of the commands of the Bibles? If, in the Bible, if God would show us that this isn't just a prohibition, it's a freedom. It's a gift 
And it's a command to welcome one another as God has welcomed you. That's the imperative that he says here in verse 7 that really gives us an understanding of the next several verses. But, but why? Why are we to understand that he welcomed us and therefore turn and welcome others? What, what for? Sometimes, again, we need to read the Bible more slowly. Verse 7 ends, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Make no mistake, the gospel isn't ultimately about humans receiving mercy. It's not us stepping back into that place where we can be happy again. It is those things, but first and foremost, the gospel is about God's glory. The highest outcome, therefore, of our welcoming one another in the highest outcome and output of our human interactions, the best of them, is that God would be glorified. No human relationships or interactions or welcoming are meant to be ends in themselves. It's for God's glory or it's wasted. And I'm going to belabor this point a little longer, uh, go on even a, f- a further tangent in this, because I feel like if we try to declare the gospel and the story of God to the world, and we subtly kind of, kind of weave in lesser American values of happiness or whatever else it is, without the utmost of why God does what he does, I'm afraid that we serve each other wrongly. We harm those that we are meant to be bringing into the faith, and we offend God. What happens when we subtly kind of reduce the, the object of why we're given and granted relationships? Whether it's welcoming each other in faith in the church or even the relationship that God gives, marriage. What happens to our witness in the world? What happens to how we live in the church and in our families when we allow marriage to be reduced to something other than what God says it is? And we kind of go out there and kind of try to compete with the world. And we say things like this. God's design for marriage will make you happier than the world's design for marriage. Well, is that true? I think that's true. But it's misleading. We try to adopt the world's values, which is a reduction of God's values for his glory thinking we're, we're glorifying God when we try to compete with the world, playing the world's game. And then we do it, we even, it, it, the worst place of it, and I have to admit, I've participated in so much of this. The worst is when the world that over-sexualizes every relationship and defies and identifies itself with an over-sexualization of things when we participate in that in the church. Oh, the best sex is married sex. And we'll say things like that. Well, let me tell you, whatever's best is from God, but that's not our best message. We have a better message. And when we pervert or reduce 
the gospel message to other things, like things that would satisfy us today, rather than God gives us relationships, marriage, church relationship, the ability to welcome each other and to be in right relationship with God and others for his glory. When we reduce it to anything lesser, we pervert it. We can try to put a Bible stamp on it. You know, it's, it's, it's better with Bible stuff. It's better. It's, it, makes, it makes you more happy. Now listen, every time we try to fight the world's battles, we lose the real battles. We don't need to argue with the world about whether or not God's design for human relationships makes us most happy. We don't need to hijack God's purposes in order to kind of articulate our silly ambitions and our futile arguments. God didn't call us to compete with the world, church, but to preach his glorious gospel to the world as he's redeeming the world and as we're making disciples and he's building his church. And as it relates to marriage, I've heard one preacher say, marriage is not to make us more happy. Marriage is not for happiness, it's for holiness. Or you could echo verse seven, for his glory, welcome each other as God has welcomed you for his glory. Interact in your relationships or in your marriages not simply for your happiness, but for holiness, for his glory. When a man and a woman make a holy covenant before God and hold to that covenant throughout the hardships and the pain, it displays the glorious image of the Trinitarian God in a unique way. It shows his long-suffering nature. And in that sense, marriage is a unique picture of God's glory. But listen, That's not just what marriage is for. That's what all relationships are for. That's what church is for. And today, again, I repent if I've participated in reducing relationships or marriage to anything else than the purpose of his glory. And in the wake of our imbalance, I wonder, my side note's gonna be done here in a second. I'm gonna get back to the Bible. I wonder though, how much damage we've done to the doctrine of singleness and to single people in general in not celebrating the glory of all relationships. Remember Jesus, he's kind of a big deal. He never got married. Paul, when he wrote Romans, pretty much his whole ministry career, He wasn't married. And listen, they could obey verse 7 just fine. They could live the fullness of all the gospel for the glory of God and obey Jesus in all their relationships, welcoming one another for the glory of God, responding to the the sacrifice of Christ. They could do all that, and they weren't married. So married people, single people, The point of your life is to glorify God in your relationships. You don't just glorify your relationships. You don't glorify yourself. You don't allow for transactional relationships. Men, married men, you don't allow marriage to be something like, if she makes me happy, I'll make her happy and I'll serve her. And single people, you don't allow your church relationships to be transactional either. 
Don't just see what you can get out of relationships. Don't come to church just to get fed. As I've heard people say in the United States, don't use Christ's church for lesser purposes than his glory. That's perversion. That's reduction. Your relationships are here for his holiness, not simply for our happiness. Because sometimes, listen, confessing our sin to one another, praying for one another that we might be healed, forgiving one another, waiting on God together, it's not always happy or feel happy. We're better together, amen? But it doesn't mean that we're always happier together or feel better together. We rejoice with those who rejoice a few chapters ago. We weep with those who weep. So we, we seek God's glory together regardless of the circumstances. That's what the whole picture of the gospel is for. And so we welcome and we receive others regardless of our circumstances because Jesus first welcomed, received us. Now, moving forward in our text, as Paul continues on, we see in verse 8 and beyond how that unfolds, that the story of how God would move in the nations and through his Jewish people is a story about him welcoming the peoples of the the world for his glory. And it's in such a unique way. I pray, Jesus, that if there's any presumptions of what we think we know about the Bible that would prevent us from seeing your truth in a new and a powerful and a transformative way, I pray that we would see, that you would remove any barriers. Because as we move forward, I think you'll be surprised to see what God is doing here Verse 8 and beyond. The gospel is about God's glory revealed to sinners. And so after last chapters, the last several weeks, addressing the, the weak and the strong, almost abruptly, Paul moves to two different categories that seem to parallel. Not the weak and the strong, but now the Jew and the Gentile. Again, verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Verse 7, remember, he does these things in the, in the world for his glory. And I think that's sort of echoed here in verse 8 when it says, to show God's truthfulness. See, God is glorified when his truthfulness is vindicated. And how does God uniquely display his glory and vindicate his truthfulness? He, he fulfills the promise that seems to be most commonly overlooked. That God would so graciously, so counterintuitively, become a servant to sinners. Don't, don't miss the paradox and the scandal of this. Don't get used to it. This was a paradox to Jews at the time. This is a paradox of every religion and idea in world history that God himself would condescend himself. He would stoop down and serve underneath those who are under him, created by him, rebelling against him. This is our message. Every other worldview is how can man get to God, restore himself, find his oneness, Our faith is that God comes to us when we could never get to him. And he lessens, he lowers himself to the point of the cross 
serving us. God, verse 8, Christ became a servant. Now, I said that this was against their expectation. This was a paradox at the time and really since. But though it's against the expectation, it is not against the prophetic promise in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, I could name a whole bunch, but Isaiah 53 in particular, written seven centuries before Christ, tells of this suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions. Do you remember that? And Jesus himself said, paradoxically, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, that God would serve to give his life as a ransom for many, for Jew and Gentile alike. But listen, it says here, first to Jews. For I tell you, verse 8, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. This is a euphemism for to the Jew. He came first to serve the Jews. by come, Again, by becoming the, the ultimate, the once and for all, Yom Kippur sacrifice, the, the sacrifice to atone for sin once and for all on a Roman cross. And by serving like, Je- like this, Jesus, as verse 8 says, shows God's truthfulness, vindicates God's truthfulness, his justice, and it says confirms God's promise to the patriarchs. This means to the Jewish fathers, Abraham and Jacob, he confirms the promise because he, he, he confirms the blessing to the patriarchs. He, he promised that he would bless them. And on the cross, he eats up the curse and takes the curse so that he can bless them. But do you remember what the blessing was? It's spoken twice to Abraham and then again to Isaac and Jacob. It says, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. And it says, to the nations. That's why the, very, the third thing in verses 8 and 9 that it says that Jesus became a servant for, he became a servant not only, number one, to vindicate God's truthfulness, and then number two, to confirm the promises given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but number three, we see in verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now, there's that glory thing again. Now, if you've checked out at all, I'm going to invite you to check back in because there's something really strange that, that uh, we need to see in how this statement in verse 9 plays out in the next several verses. Something that maybe most of us have never considered before about God and about history. Something that might seem the first time you read it as contradictory, but something that nevertheless uniquely displays God's majesty. And I think if you really slow down and consider it, you'll be confounded for a minute, but amazed. And that is that in these coming verses, Paul is making the case for Gentiles glorifying God for the mercy that Jews receive. In our church, there's over the years been a few Jewish people that Jesus saves, and we have some in our church even today. But most of us, though we celebrate God's unparalleled diversity in our church, one thing that most of us have in common is that we're not Jewish. 
And we are recipients of a blessing that was first for the Jews. And Paul's making the case, prophesying, fulfilling the prophecy that Gentiles would glorify God for mercy that God shows to Jews. Verse 9 carries on. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Paul is here quoting from 2 Samuel 22. And this is meant to be a sign to the Gentiles that vindicates the glory of God, even before it's some sort of welcoming to the Gentile nations. It's a sign. In essence, some would think against the Gentiles. Now, Paul picks up in verse 10 and quotes Deuteronomy 32. Remember, Deuteronomy 32 was given before, a series of messages before they would go and conquer the land of Canaan. Keep that in mind. Verse 10, and again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This is a prophetic statement, a command to the Gentiles right before Israel would take over the promised land. And we should see this as strange. It's in essence saying, rejoice, O Gentiles, the word used for Gentiles, O ethnos, all you ethnicities, you non-Jewish people, rejoice. Because even though God is uprooting you from your land, and even though you're on the outside looking in of the promise of God, and, and, and even though, as, as First Peter would say, you are not a people, not having received mercy, rejoice. How can this be? I'm going to let that question linger as we move forward. Paul goes on to quote Psalm 117, which is the shortest chapter in the Bible. You guys are about to have an opportunity to memorize a whole chapter here. Paul only quotes the first verse. He says in verse 11, and this is actually quoting Psalm 117, verse 1, again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles and all you peoples, extol him. Again, praise him. Now I'm going to finish the whole psalm, the whole psalm, by reading the the other verse. Verse 2 of Psalm 117. So it picks up, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all you peoples praise him. Because, verse 2, for great, for great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Great is this mystery of mercy toward us. You Gentiles who who are not a people, who are outside the promise, rejoice for God's mercy on us. What a mystery. And then finally, verse 12 And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles hope. See, they they might be on the outside looking in. But what we as Gentiles can see is that inside the Jewish promise is the root of all hope and joy and anything of real worth, this promise of the eternal Messiah coming, the only true hope. And if we see Jew or Gentile, if we're granted sight to see it, we will have hope with real substance and not 
hopelessness. Now it says the root of Jesse. This is a really strange phrase that's only used once in the Bible. And it's strange because genealogically, Jesus was not the root of Jesse. He wasn't the ancestor of Jesse. He was the descendant of Jesse. And yet, he is called the root of Jesse. And rightly so. See, only Jesus can be both the root and the fruit of Jesse. The redemption of Jew and Gentile. Someone that is powerful enough and glorious enough for us to hope in. And so I'm going to come back around and directly ask that question again. Why would the Gentiles rejoice about Jewish salvation? Is this ethnocentric? Is this just kind of like that, like empty bragging, like that girl on Instagram who just goes off bragging and then for good measure throws in that religious hashtag blessed? Or is this something different? This is something different. Follow me in this thought. The only hope that Gentiles have is the same hope that Jews have. And the hope is that God is God. He's gloriously God. He's all-powerful. He's above us. He's sovereign. And that the almighty God of the Jews who has showed himself far and above any other comparable idea or lower G God, this God is who he, who he is and does what he says he would do and blesses the Jews like he said he would bless them. And so that through the Jews, we could receive his blessing. And so any Gentiles, any non-Jews can only retain such a hope in God if God first shows himself faithful to his first promise Because we can only receive blessing through the Jewish people if we see the blessing to the Jewish people first. And that's how Paul is led to think. And he's writing this letter to a church that has both Jew and Gentile and who've been going through different disagreements about the lesser things in their cultures. Remember Jesus, verse 8 became a servant to the Jews in order to bless the whole world so that verse 9, the Gentiles would rejoice. I want to say, beware, church, of emptying our faith of its Jewish roots and sort of implicitly overriding the hard drive with American values and ideas. We rob ourselves of the richness of our faith. The only true hope that a Jew has is the Jewish Savior. And the only true and lasting hope that a non-Jew has is the Jewish Savior, Jesus. The only hope that holds us together is the root of Jesse. And he shows himself faithful. I, I was talking to a kid on campus a few weeks ago, and I felt him draw in when I was pondering something out loud. Um, that's what I tend to do a lot. I ponder things out loud, and I've... I've I've stopped apologizing for it so much, whether that's good or bad. But I said to him, I said, brother, your ancestors are from Africa. My ancestors are from Europe. And despite their many sins and heartaches, you and I are talking here right now in neither of those continents. We're talking in North America about 
a man, a Jewish man, who's from neither of those three continents. He's from a fourth place. He's from the Middle East. This man that died, verifiably died, and who was claimed to have risen again thousands of years ago. Now, we're talking either because this is one of history's greatest coincidences and and crazy anomalies, or because it really happened. He really rose from the dead. He really died for our sin. And nothing is more relevant to our daily lives right now than that. And I, I love how that idea went into a whole bunch of powerful prayer that I got to receive mostly his fire and his prayer as we were talking together. See, the original purpose in the garden before there was separate nations, before, before we were separated from God with no hope in the world, before we were objects of wrath, when God created Adam and Eve, the original purpose in the garden was that you would, we would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that is restored only in the gospel of our Jewish Savior who redeems us and redeem, redeems all the nations back to himself. And this is, this is paralleled. In Romans 1, our very first chapter of Romans, it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Or you could say also the Gentile. See, God is faithful to the Jewish fathers or the Jewish patriarchs, as it says in verse 8. And because I can trust that, I can trust that God will be faithful to me as well. And if God is not faithful to them, what hope do I have that he'll be faithful to me? I bring this illustration up quite often, and I'll do it again. But studies have shown that children want to see that their father loves their mother even more preeminently before the child wants to receive the father's love for them. Because if that, if that kid sees that the, the, the father's love is faithful to his mother, it sort of validates the love for them, for him. And as a Gentile, likewise, I can receive the love of, of God with a great trust, knowing that he was first faithful to his Jewish bride unfailingly, even when she was faithless and she failed him. Because this is the family, the restored family of promise that we are adopted into. That believing Gentiles can be adopted into this family. And as Jesus says, be the seed of Abraham by faith. And think of adoption for a minute. Another illustration. When my wife and I adopted our son, our oldest child was three years old. Our adoption agency to qualify us for adopting, and even multiple questions from, from CPS, they were asking us about how we were parenting our first child. Think about that. God's faithfulness for the, the firstborn of faith, the promise of Abraham, he shows himself faithful to Abraham, and therefore his promise to bless us through Abraham is vindicated, much like when we adopt our son, 
we are graded, in essence, qualified for it by how God is, is helping us to parent our first child. The gospel is the power of salvation to save and restore the Jew and to redeem and adopt in the Gentile nations. So what do we do with this amazing picture of the gospel? When we encounter this oasis spring of the gospel, and over against what we might seem is, is most relevant, you know, we might come in here, I love what my wife said earlier, we come in here with other fears. Oh, oh, something else is more relevant. The, the, the coronavirus or whatever else, there will be something tomorrow feels more relevant. And we say to the Bible, hey, Bible, you're not what's most relevant to me right now. And we need to tell ourselves, how dare I tell the Bible what's most relevant? The Bible tells me what's most relevant. And that's how we are, are founded in an unshakable hope. And that's what the world needs the most is for us to be so founded on an eternal blessing that was here before America, before the coronavirus, and that we can have such a hope that whatever circumstances or distractions come our way, we're not shaken. And so I tell you two quick things. Jump in and flow out. Verse 13, I'm going to start with the first part of the blessing. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. This word believing is, is pretty funny. Paul takes the, the word commonly used for faith and he kind of turns it into a present perfect verb. And, and so in essence, this hope that you have in faithing the gospel, let it, let it abound in you. Let it overflow in you. May you be filled up. May you jump in to this gospel with everything you have. And that is what's most relevant. Let me tell you, what is most relevant, what is most loving to do for your neighbor, if you're going to go out and risk and tell the, the, the world of this transformative love of God, God forbid that it, you haven't allowed it to fully transform you. The most loving thing you can do for your neighbor, for the nations, is to plunge in to all of Jesus, to get you some Jesus and to get you some more Jesus. No, I'm not, I'm not saying like this, this is some sort of like, uh, like go be selfish and never pray for anyone else and only concern yourself about your own needs and never anyone. No, that's, that's kind of like the self-care thing kind of brought to religion. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying the, the, the best thing that you can do for your neighbor is to make sure that your God is crushing any other false allegiances in your life. In fact, this, this word in the, that we translate faith in the Bible and that he says faithing here is probably, probably better translated allegiance. So church, will you jump into Jesus so that you're so full of hope in him that any other false allegiance would be burned away? That's what we can draw near together and do together as we meet together and, and receive the body and the blood, or we meet together and we pray in growth groups, we can abound like it says here. Jump in and finally flow out. I want to read you the, the last part of this verse. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This word translated abound really just means 
more than full. More than full. May we, like David, say, when we are founded in our great shepherd, may we say, my cup overflows. And may God, church, strategically allow the overflowing to create streams of blessing to people who are not in church today. Through our lives. May the nations, may the Gentiles, may all the peoples without hope, with all sorts of false hope that are concerned about the economy and what coronavirus is doing. May we offer them our, our, our caution with hand washing, yes, but may we offer them a greater hope, a greater fear-killing trust in our allegiance. And may we flow out and overflowing. Would you stand with me?